You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, Be'ezrus Hashem, we're going to be continuing with Rabbi Nachman's story of the seven beggars. And tonight we're going to meet the fifth beggar on the fifth night of Sheva Brachos. We're going to reunite with the hunchback beggar. The hunchback beggar who on the fifth day of the lost children in the heart of the forest, when they were starving and crying out and yearning for food, the hunchback beggar arrives and he offers them bread and the children try and connect themselves to this source of comfort, this source of faith, these shoulders upon which they can stand, only to be told, as we saw in the beginning narrative of the story, that I don't want this. I don't want you to come with me. I've come to save you for a day. I haven't come to do anything eternal. And then, as the children grow old, and they become beggars of themselves, and they find themselves under their chuppah, buried in the pit in the mud, covered in twigs and branches and dirt. On the fifth day of the Sheva Brachos, they say, oh, if only we could bring to ourselves that beggar, that hunchback beggar who saved us as we were stuck in the forest. And lo and behold, as we've seen throughout the entire story, in the midst of their yearning, in the midst of their crying, in the midst of their desire, in the midst of their longing for the absent beggar, Suddenly, the beggar arrives and says, Hineni, the hunchback beggar says, I'm here, here I am. Again, almost as if to say to us that all it takes to disclose that which we so desperately desire is to open up our eyes and recognize that it's always been there to begin with and to allow our mouths to express the longing and the desire that we have. Now, tonight's talk, tonight's sheer, tonight's discussion of the fifth beggar is going to be more of a tefillah, less of a teaching, more of a tefillah, in the sense that I've started the story and I want to try and end the story, or at least end before the ending, because Rabbi Nachman himself didn't give us the ending, the seventh beggar, as we're going to see, the legless beggar who visits the children in the forest, never arrives at the Sheva Brachos. We're going to see exactly what that means or perhaps we won't, I'm not sure yet. But when it comes to the fifth beggar, and so rather, I've started the story and I want to complete the story before Pesach Bezras Hashem, so that if we do have a chance to speak about the legless beggar, it will be on Cholomoid Pesach. But tonight I don't have, I don't have the space in my own mind to, to talk too coherently or clearly about the hunchback beggar. But instead of not giving it, and instead of ignoring it, and instead of just letting it pass by, the tefillah is that by sharing and continuing to share for anybody who may be listening, but mainly for myself, 
about the hunchback beggar, even when a person feels that they can't share about the hunchback beggar, is in and of itself a tefillah to be like the hunchback beggar, as we're going to see. So tonight, what we're going to encounter is the fifth night of the Shavabrachos, when the hunchback beggar comes and he says, Hineni, here I am. You asked for me, and I had given you a blessing that you should be like me in the forest. And now I'm offering you as a gift to be like me. Now it's a true gift. Now you have the capacity to do it. Now it's not some abstract concept of memory that a person longs to re-enter into a space that has once been forgotten, only to live off of the vapor or the fumes of some memory that has been lost. But rather now that memory comes back into focus. It's recollected, so to speak. The points of experience rooted in memory now create and form the experience once again. And the children are gifted with the capacity to be just like the hunchback beggar. And he says, you think, you think that I'm hunched back. You think that my back is crooked. You think that my back is hunched over. I'm not hunched back whatsoever. Rak adaraba, rather it's really the opposite because I have very, very strong shoulders. But my shoulders and my back are in the aspect of muat hamachsik et the small, minimal amount that contains the many within it. That my shoulders and my back looks to be hunched over. It looks like it can't carry very much. But in truth, it's this very minimal space of my shoulders that has the capacity of carrying a weight that is so much greater than its capacity to hold. It is the minimal element of space that contains the vastness of limitlessness upon it. It is the miut, the minimal, the small amount, a tiny shoulder, a tiny back, yet it can miraculously contain the maruba, that which is greater than it. And he says, I have a haskama from this. And if you want to know where my haskama comes from, the fact that I have shoulders like this, then my shoulders and my back, even though it appears that I'm hunched back, can in truth carry upon themselves a weight far larger than what they should be capable of carrying. I'm going to give you the proof that I had. And he kissed them and he said, and this is the gift that I'm going to offer you. Once there was a group of people who gathered together, says the hunchback beggar, to talk and to boast that each of them can be referred to as the little bit that holds the great amount, as minimal space that holds a maximum potential. One of them was ridiculed, but the claims of the rest who gathered together were all accepted, but my ability was accepted as the greatest of all. The first of them claimed that his mind can be called little, but it holds a great amount, for he bore tens of thousands of people with their needs and their actions and their passions and all of the events of their lives in his very small brain. Immediately, the others gathered together laughed at him, and they said, you are nothing, and all the people in your mind are nothing. And then another member of the group who were boasting about their ability to be minimal, yet contain maximum strength, to be small with the capacity to hold more than their bodies should allow them to hold. And he announced, I once saw an example of the little that holds the great that resembles yours, one of them said. I was passing by a mountain and I saw a huge pile of refuse and filth on its slopes. There was so much of it that I wondered how it got there. 
It all comes from me, said the man who was standing nearby the mountain. It turned out that he dwelt close to the mountain and there he threw the leavings of his meals and all the rubbish and filth he produced. A vast heap of garbage came from this one individual. And so, like you, he could be referred to as Miuta Machsik Esamaruba, as the little one who holds a great amount, larger than its capacity. Another amongst them claimed that the attribute of the little that holds the great applied to his tiny country. Its fields and its orchards produced such great amounts of fruit that when all the crops were gathered together, they exceeded what could possibly have grown in such a small area. This, declared the man, was the little that holds the great, the minimal that contains the maximum, and the others all agreed. The next speaker said that he had a wonderful orchard. It was so beautiful that many people, including ministers and aristocrats, would come there for a summer stroll, and more people actually entered in it at any time than the garden could possibly hold. This garden too, he said, could be referred to as the little that holds the large, and his words were also well received. Another said that it was his speech that can be referred to as the little that holds the great. Because I, said the individual, am a secretary to a great king, he explained. Many people present their requests and their petitions and their various other matters to the king, but he is of course unable to give his attention to each and every one of them. Instead, I combine all of their petitions and their praises and their requests, and I pass them on to the king in few well-chosen words. Thus, my speech represents the ideal of the little bit that holds the great, or the minimal that holds the maximum. The following speaker claimed the same quality with regards to his silence. He had many great adversaries, and they were continually quarreling with him and in his presence and slandering him behind his back. All that they said he met with silence, and his silence responded to so many words of calamity that it too can be considered the little bit that holds the great, or the minimal that contains the maximum. The last one amongst the group said that he himself was the little that holds the great, meaning he doesn't simply represent it, but he is the element or the aspect of that very little capacity that has the ability to hold within itself a larger amount than is humanly feasible. There was a poor man, he said, who was blind and huge in stature. But I, I am small myself, but I guided this poor blind man. Were it not for me, the huge man would slip and fall. And so I consider myself the little bit that holds the great. Now, continues the hunchback beggar, I told them, you all possess something of the little that holds the great of the of the minimal that contains the maximum within it. And I know that each and every one of you means by your words. I know too that the last of you to speak, the little who led the blind giant, he in truth is the greatest of all of you because it is he who leads the moon. For the moon is referred to as blind because it has no light of its own. He is small and the moon is great for the world cannot exist without it. And so he can truly be considered the little bit that holds the great. But my claim, says the hunchback beggar, is greater than any of yours, and I can prove it. Now let me tell you a story. Once there were a group of people who were making a study. Every animal they knew, every creature of the world they said, 
has a particular shady spot where it chooses to abide. Every bird, too, has a bow upon which it rests and where it perches and nowhere else. The people wondered whether there was a single tree in whose shade every animal would want to lie and on whose branches every bird would find its place. They discovered that such a tree did exist and that the animals and the birds of every kind lived there, all mingling and playing together and never harming one another. They desired very much to go to that tree for they realized that the joy of being there must surely be boundless. They tried to ascertain in which direction they should go but could not agree amongst themselves, and there was no one to decide who was right. One said they could go to the east, and another said they should travel to the west, and the others were just as strongly in favor of the other two directions. Then a wise man came to them and he said as follows, why are you inquiring with regards to the direction of the tree? First, you should find out which of you have access to the tree, because not everyone is worthy of going to the tree. Only those who share the qualities of the tree have access to the tree. The qualities that give one access to the tree are emuna, faith, fear of God, and anivas, humility. Those are the roots from which the tree grows, and its trunk from which its branches grow is truth. Whoever does not possess these attributes cannot approach the tree. Some of them in this group did not have such attributes, but others did. And they were all of one group and they did not want to be separated. They decided to wait until all were worthy so that they could all travel together to this tree. They worked to improve themselves. And when all were worthy, there were no longer any differences of opinion about the right direction. They set out together on their way to the tree. They traveled for a long time until at last they saw the tree from afar. When they looked at it, however, they realized that the tree did not exist in space. It had no place. But if it did not exist in space, how could they reach it? I too, said the hunchback beggar, was with them. And I told them that I could lead them to the tree. The tree had no place because it existed beyond space. Now, the little that holds the great, the miotamachsik esamruba, the minimal amount of area that contains within it vast resources beyond that which is physically imaginable, that small place holds more than it possibly can. It exceeds itself, yet it still occupies space. For no matter how small and minimal it is, it must occupy some space. I, said the hunchback beggar, embody the highest form of the miotamachsik at Samaruba of the little that holds the large, of the minimal that holds the maximum. For I stand at the very limit of space, beyond which there is no space. I could bring them to the tree that is beyond space, for I am the threshold between space and beyond space. I brought them on my back to the tree, and this is how I received confirmation that I am the highest form of the little that holds the great. Now, says the hunchback beggar, to the children who are getting married in the pit, buried in the mud, covered by twigs, branches, and garbage. I give this gift to you, that you should be just like I am. The joy of the wedding celebration continued, made even greater by the gifts that the young couple had just received. Now, 
what the hunchback beggar seems to represent on a very practical level, not on a mystical level of any means, is the capacity for somebody to carry a burden that is larger than their capacity. Very often when a person looks at what they're capable of doing, when a person looks at what they're capable of completing or engaging in, our desire to engage in certain behaviors, tasks, missions, a willingness to engage with the other is directly in line or nearly connected to our capacity to withhold that burden. And so there are some things that a person can handle and there are other things that a person can handle. And it's up to the rational and psychological insight of the individual to determine what they're capable of doing and what they're incapable of doing. But then there's a certain type of soul or better stated, there's a certain type of aspect within each and every soul. Because as we're going to see, if it's not clear already, that the beggars are each and every one of us. And that in truth, there aren't really seven beggars, but rather as the tzaddikim of Breslov have pointed out, each beggar that we encounter in the Sheva Brachos is an element of a singular personality, which each and every one of us are part of and take part in. That we are all blind and we are all deaf and we are all stuttering and we are all crooked necked and we are all hunchbacked and we are all handless and we're all legless. And so it's not enough to say that there are certain souls or certain individuals that can embody or actualize the tendency of the hunchback beggar, because it's much more of a question of our willingness to uncover the hunchback beggar within ourselves. Now the hunchback beggar describes himself as containing the element or the spiritual trait of miyutamachzik esamaruba the very, very little bit, the minimal amount of space that somehow, some way, paradoxically and impossibly has the ability to hold within itself that which exceeds its area. The ability of an individual to hold within their hearts, to hold within their minds, to hold within their souls and on their backs more than what they are capable of handling. Now, paradoxically speaking, if a person goes in to any given situation with an attempt to hold more than they can handle, they'll be overwhelmed and they will be nullified because it's impossible for them to hold it. But as the, leg, as the hunchback beggar teaches us, if we want to find access to this place within ourselves that has the ability to hold more than we're capable of holding, it's through the characteristics of faith, fear, and humility. Faith, fear, and humility, all of which represent the quality of recognizing that we are not all that exists, that we are not the only thing that exists in the world, that our egos are not the sum total of creation's purpose, and that our personal desires do not dictate exactly what the world must respond to, or even what I must respond to. Faith, emuna, which the hunchback beggar tells us is the first root of the tree that exists beyond space. Emuna, the capacity to say, I have faith in something, 
is the willingness of the individual to sacrifice their quest for rational knowledge, to sacrifice the demand to know everything absolutely in an empirical way, and to give ourselves over to that which is beyond ourselves, to give ourselves over to the ever-flowing sway of a knowledge that is beyond knowledge, of a wisdom that shatters the edifices upon which we measure wisdom. This is the emuna that Rabbi Nachman talks about in the 64th teaching of Lukuti Maharan, that is a leap beyond sturdy ground into the abysmal depths where it's impossible for human logic or knowledge to determine what is up or what is down, what is real or what is fake, what is something or what is nothing. That act of emuna, that capacity of the Jewish individual to toss themselves really over the cliff of rationality and to suspend themselves in the air of not knowing, that is the act of emuna. That is the belittling of oneself, the bowing of oneself to the very real realization that what I know and what I think is ultimately not the sole decider of all that is in the world. The second root of the tree that the hunchback beggar describes, that tree that stands beyond time, that point of spirituality that rests just outside of our physical grasp, is yira, or yirat shamayim, a fear of heaven. Now, in contradistinction to the very typical and draconian methods in which we're taught about fear or a certain pathological concern with regards to reward or punishment, Yirat Shemayim or Yiras Haroimimus, as described in the Svarim HaKadoshim, in our holy books, and in particular the writings of Rabbi Nachman, is a Yirat Shemayim. It's an acknowledgement that there is something so much larger than me in existence. There is something so much bigger than my petty egoisms and my petty, limited, constricted mindset that tries to only feed my own desires and my own yearnings and my own concerns and to satisfy my own difficulties. When a person acknowledges the vastness of Hashem or how expansive the world actually is or even how expansive the face of the other is, when a person looks in the face of the other individual, as we've been taught by our prophets, both secular and holy, is that the face carries within itself an infinity that exceeds the limitation of human beings. That as Immanuel Levinas, the Jewish philosopher and the philosopher of Judaism, taught so often, the face, when I encounter the face of another individual, what I should feel is a terror of being seized by transcendence. I should be moved beyond myself. I should beg at the feet of this individual and say, what can I do to help you? Because the face of the other carries the trait or the trace of the face of God, the Pnei Hashem, the face of the infinite, the face that annihilates the individual egoisms that fear only for ourselves and give us the ability to move beyond our limited concerns and our anxieties and to recognize yiras haremimus, a fear of something much larger than ourselves, a desire to allow for the divine wisdom to unfold in our lives through acts of tzedakah and righteousness and chesed and welcoming the other and moving away from our xenophobic fear of others and making space for the other. 
inviting the unknown into ourselves. Again, representing the same psychological movement as that which is involved in emuna, which is a belittling of the self, a minimizing of the self, a making oneself smaller, engaging with being small. And the third root that the hunchback beggar describes as being the root that gives birth to the tree beyond time is anava, humility. Now, it's incredibly important to understand that anava and humility is not self-negation. We're not talking about judging oneself harshly or negating one's character strengths or pretending that we don't have anything good in ourselves. My safta, may she live and be well, used to stay and still says, it's better in Yiddish, but I can only repeat it in Hebrew, that don't make yourself small, you're not that great. Individuals who attempt to belittle themselves and make themselves smaller by self-denigrating themselves and speaking harshly about themselves. And as our tzaddikim tell us, speaking Lashon Hara about ourselves, which is harsher than most forms of negative speech, that is not what humility is. Humility is an acknowledgement that just as I am the center of the cosmos, just as I, in my own egoisms, in my own personal concerns, in my own personal anxieties, and my own personal drives, represent the center of my universe, so too does every individual that I encounter occupy the center of their universe. That just as I am incurred through the writings of our teachers and our rabbis and our tzaddikim to announce that the entire world was created solely for me, so too I must recognize that the individual next to me who is peripheral in my life also has that same call to acknowledge that the entire world was created for them, which makes me periphery. Anivus, anava, humility is recognizing that although I have my own drives, although I have my own stipulations about what I desire out of the world, that says absolutely nothing about anybody else in the world. And when we can recognize that, when we can recognize that our sense of self goes as far as we go, we can open ourselves up to the possibility of making space for another person, of recognizing that my mind, my heart, and my emotional needs do not dictate the fundamental laws of what reality is. These three roots that give birth to the tree that stands beyond space, which the hunched back beggar brings us access to, are all about making the self smaller, learning how to be small. Now, it's, I need to stress for myself more than anything, Making oneself small is not making oneself a creature of lack or deficiency. Making one small is simply diminishing my presence. It doesn't say anything about my strengths or my character strengths or my emotions or my capacity to speak or my capacity to say important things and to share and to be present in the life of other people, but rather I can hold on to all of those things I just need to make myself miniature. I need to take up less space. We need to learn how to be mitzamsem ourselves. Just as God, so to speak, was mitzamsem himself in order to create the space of creation, so too we, through our imaginative attempts to imitate God, must be mitzamsem ourselves. We must make ourselves smaller to make room for the other and their desires. 
each and every person exists in their fullness with all of their presence of self and all of their desires being kadosh, kulam kadoshim, everybody is holy and everybody is blessed and everybody is beautiful. What we need to learn how to do is minimize ourselves, to make ourselves smaller so that we can make room for the other. When we are capable of making space for that which is beyond our minds, when we are capable of making room, of withholding, of breathing in, of inhaling, of bending our backs, that is where we are gifted with the ability to hold more than we can physically, emotionally, or even psychologically hold. Because something happens when an individual makes themselves smaller. Something happens when an individual recognizes that as long as it is my desires and my yearnings and my own self-satisfaction that directs my actions, I will always bump into walls and I will always frustrate myself and other people. The problem is not that we don't deserve or that we're not capable of accomplishing what we want. The problem is that it is what we want that directs our desire for the day. I can speak on a very vulnerable level only because I asked my wife beforehand about whether I can say this or not. But after an incredibly, incredibly long and tiring and difficult and wonderful and exhausting and burdensome and beautiful week at home with young children and the shift and the topsy-turvy and the transition from what we once knew to what is true now, enter Shabbos and all I wanted to do was have my Kabbalah Shabbos was to sit in my office facing my Svarim HaKadoshim, looking at the faces of Sadiqim, quieting down the rest of the world, entering into a space of Shabbos. And in order for me in my own egoism and my own desires to enter into that space of Shabbos, I acted like a crazy person. I yelled at my children and I needed my children to get to bed and I was upset and I was frustrated and all of these things. Why? It dawned on me as I was davening the Kapitel the Tehillim that the Hasidim and the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh told us to say, before Kabbalah Shabbos, Hoidu La Hashem, which is the source, the source text for where we learn about Birchas HaGoymel, the source text where we learn about thanking Hashem at that transition point between being stuck in the dire straits and entering into a space of expansion. And as I was sitting there wondering why I'm not feeling so excited about Shabbos, why I'm not letting myself settle in to the gift of Shabbos that allows one to live in the silence of of ignorance and transform it into faith, it dawned on me, and very severely it dawned on me that I served myself the entire day. I had in my mind that davening Kabbalah Shabbos individually in B'yechidus with some sort of privacy was exactly what needed to be done. And my own self-serving desires directed the attitude of everybody else, and it led me to be upset at my children, my sweet children. And so ultimately, I brought this to my wife and I said, you know, I'm sorry, I was a crazy person. I recognize that at least. And she said, I don't understand. You know, it's just about not thinking about yourself at all and thinking only about them. And that's when it dawned on me, just the vast difference that exists between men and women, or at least me and my wife, is that what she's describing as the simplest thing in the world of, yeah, just put yourself out of the picture. Don't think about yourself. 
Don't think about yourself. Think about the children. Think about the desires of others. And that's how everything becomes easier. And, and I humbly said, I said, okay, so I have a million books in that room, considered Kabbalistic texts and Hasidic texts and Svar Makadoshim that all talk about reaching that natural, intuitive place. So I have some work to do. But ultimately, it made me realize that the real tefillah of the hunched back beggar, the real tefillah of the hunched back beggar is to be able to make oneself smaller, the ability to make oneself nothing. Because when we allow ourselves to be nothing, when we allow ourselves, so to speak, to roll with things, to go with the flow of things, at that point, we begin to be capable of so much more than we thought we were. Because when we live within our constricted consciousness of egoisms and our own particular desires of what is up and what is down, our thoughts and our worldview is limited to the space that we occupy, to the space that we take up to our natural capacities. But when we belittle ourselves and we make ourselves small and we open ourselves up to the other, every other individual is simply a messenger that represents that there is something much larger than you in the world. The face of another person, the face of a stranger, which Bezra Hashem we should be able to see soon enough again, is just a reminder in the core of the soul, in the gut, that there is something much bigger than you in the world, that there are things that are much bigger. And our job is to get in line and flow with it instead of trying to assert our desires for self-control and self-mastery over things. And the hunchback beggar says, I am the smallest. I have the least space, yet I can carry you to that place beyond space. Because this tree, that place that offers shade to everybody, that messianic space, that eschatological space of unity, where each and every individual can find exactly what it is that they're looking for, the shade from the dangers of the world that we're looking for, the protection from the anxieties of the world that we're looking for, the protection from all of those things that overwhelm us. There is a tree that exists that offers that for all animals and for all birds and for all souls to the point that there will be no more frustration and there will be no more argumentation and there will be no more distinction. Rather, there will be distinction, but distinction will not create fragmentation, but rather distinction will give birth to a beautiful visage that emerges out of the materialization of the multiplicity of colors, the art form that is born out of the discrepancies between things to make room for everything. That tree exists. And more and more in these days, we're all desiring that tree. We're all yearning for that tree, for that singular space where no matter how or what it is, just offer us some shade. Offer us that that shade of faith. But the only way to get there, the only way to traverse and to move beyond space to a place of non-space or locality to a place of non-locality or rationality to a place of suspending the rational and enveloping oneself in the irrational space of faith, it is dependent on the ability to be an unav, to find humility, to humble the self, to be anonymous, to limit one's footprint, to no longer need to be the vehicle that is recognized, but rather to be satisfied with being a vehicle that offers content that other people benefit from. 
when we quiet down our ego and we allow the light of Hashem to shine through us, through acts of kindness and making space for the other, or thinking about the other, or allowing the other's desires to determine where the day goes as opposed to my own individual desires, that is how we make room for everybody on our backs. And we find that it is our ability, specifically when we stop thinking about ourselves, to carry ourselves and others to that place beyond space. Because the smaller we make ourselves, the more minimal we make ourselves, to the point that we occupy that sliver that must remain of self, that individual sense of self that always remains, that individual sense of being small, of being minimal, of being almost invisible, of becoming invisible, of becoming smaller, that process is what enables us to make room for others. It's what enables us to carry ourselves and others to that promised space where the shade protects all of us. Now, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, Schusa Yoganelenu has a teaching. I want to say it's Torah Nun Beis, but I'm not 100% sure. It could be Torah Kuf Nun Beis or Torah Reish Nun Beis. So it's either the 52nd teaching, the 152nd teaching, or the 252nd teaching in the Kutamaran, or it's none of those. But it's still one of my favorite teachings because Rabbi Nachman says as follows Mi sheyesh lo lev, ein shayech lo makom klal. Someone who has a heart, the concept of space, the concept of location, the concept of being here or there is no longer practical for them. It doesn't make a difference. Wherever I am, there I am. Wherever my thoughts are, that's where I am. When I have room in my heart for rachamim, for empathy, for making room for the other, at that point, I cease to demand being here or there because I open myself up to a space beyond space. I open myself up to that impossible space of the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, that Makom Ha'aron Eino Min Hamida, that the architectonics that contained the Aron Kodesh and the Kodesh HaKadoshim, in truth, were devoid of any measurement. Paradoxically, somehow, they took up space without taking up space. They were present without being present. They were visible in their invisibility. They made themselves small, and therefore they became large. That is the avoida. The avoida is to open our hearts to the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who is referred to as Hamakom, the true place, as we say, specifically in moments of difficulty, specifically when we're so open to the face of the other in their suffering, in their impoverishment, at the moment of mourning, at the moment of loss, we're able to recognize that I don't matter right now. All that matters is that I am there for the other. The true space of the world will bring you comfort. And those who have a heart, those who open themselves up to the vulnerability of being human, to the vulnerability of looking the other in the face and unflinchingly gazing into the needs of the other without demanding that it's my needs that take space, that is what gives us access to the infinite. And when we access the infinite, it doesn't matter where we are. 
It doesn't matter if we're with our families for Pesach or we're alone for Pesach. It doesn't matter if where we were supposed to be for Pesach or whether we're in a place that we didn't expect to be for Pesach. No matter where you are, that is where you are. As long as a person is capable of opening their hearts and embracing that vulnerability. To end this tefillah, this, this tefillah to be gifted the gift of the hunchback beggar, to become the miyotamachsik esamaruba, to put our own individual desires aside and our own frustrations and anxieties aside for the sake of being present for the other, of carrying the burden of the other. What I want to share is a teaching really from the Magad of Mezrich, the, the main student of the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh. And it's recorded in the Baal HaTanya Sefer HaTanya, Nerav Shagar, also understood very deeply the power of this Torah. Uh, the Svarim of Gur, also the Imre Emes and the Svas Emes also discussed this Torah very much. The Pasuk in Yeshaya says that Yaakov Asher Pada Es Avraham, that in the future, Hashem will come to save the Jewish people and say that it was Yaakov who came to redeem Avraham. And the obvious question is chronologically, this doesn't make sense. Chronologically, Yaakov wasn't even born when Avram Avinu needed to be saved. So how can the Torah, how could the Nevi'im and the Ksuvim attribute Avram Avinu's being saved to the presence of Yaakov Avinu? So the Meforshim, the commentators already point out that this is really with regards to when Avram Avinu was thrown into the Kivshan Ha'esh in the house of Nimrod. That when Avram Avinu entered into that place of burning, entered into that place of concealment and destruction, the reason he was saved was because his future progeny, Yaakov Avinu, would emerge. But again, that demands understanding. Why is it that it's the future Yaakov that would save the present Avraham? And what the tzaddikim point out is as follows, that as the archetypal models of the particular traits and midos that represent the human being's psychological ability to imitate the midos, so to speak, of Hashem, or the spheros, Avram Avinu represents chesed. Avram Avinu represents love and loving kindness and expressivity and a movement outwards and a movement towards the other. As we know about Avram Avinu, his tent was open from all sides. And part of the problem sometimes with that type of attitude is that when a person gives too much, they give without any distinction and they can offer kindness and love to those who don't deserve it and so on and so forth. Yaakov Avinu, on the other hand, represents, archetypally speaking, the paradigm of rachamim, of mercy or better stated compassion. Empathy, the ability to look at the other human being and recognize that I can share in their burden. There is something that I can do to help the other. Although I may not have experienced the same experience as they have, which would be sympathy, I can identify within the depths of my soul a similar pattern to their experience, and therefore I can be present for them, and I can help them burden that. I can become the makom that offers them nechama. I can become the space that helps carry them to the place that they need to be. And the tzaddikim go on and they say as follows, that Avraham is ahava. Avraham is love. What happens when love dies? What happens when love falls away? What happens when a person can no longer love the other? They can no longer naturally make space for the other out of love. 
At that point, the only thing that can redeem it is the compassion, is mercy, is empathy. By looking at the face of the other, by acknowledging the needs and the desires of the other, by acknowledging that just as I am a human being, the other is a human being. And just as I struggle, they struggle. And just as I come from origins, they come from origins. And just as I have the human condition which cuts me through and through with anxiety and fear, so too they are cut through with anxiety and fear. If I can't find the capacity to love the other, if I can't find the capacity to truly embrace the other, let me recognize our shared humanity. Let me have mercy and compassion on them. Let me be empathetic with them. Because when I allow myself to be empathic with another individual, I then make room to carry them. I then give myself the ability to be a miyotamachsik esamaruba, to have that very little space by making myself smaller, yet nevertheless I have the capacity of holding more than I ever thought imaginable. But Ezra Hashem, what we're going to encounter tomorrow night is the handless beggar. Now, I don't know what to tell you about the handless beggar yet. Namir Tzashem, I'll be able to share something meaningful about the handless beggar. And then we'll see what's going to happen with whether or not we meet the legless beggar or not. We're all desiring to meet the legless beggar. We're all yearning to meet the legless beggar. But whether or not we speak about what it means to yearn for the legless beggar is not up to me. It's up to my rebellion, Bezra Sashem. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.